I grew up in the church, and I remember Easter being a very, very special Sunday where my sisters wore frilly white hats and dainty white gloves. My brothers and I had to wear little coats with annoying clip-on ties. My mother always insisted on pictures after the service, and we had to keep our nice clothes on through the Sunday morning afternoon meal and practice good manners. And that was a real disappointment because I wanted to put on play clothes and go run around the backyard. Unlike Christmas, Easter did not involve presents under the tree. Another disappointment. My grandparents sometimes sent chocolate Easter bunnies. Bite into them, they were hollow on the inside. Remember those painted eggs? I always thought, those are going to be really tasty. It's just an excuse to get kids to eat protein. Easter always fell on a Sunday. Well, what's the point of having a holiday on a weekend? You don't get an extra day off of school. And I don't recall the content of too many Easter sermons. Theologically, I, for some reason, came to view Easter as sort of the postscript to the more important story of the cross. Easter was sort of the the epilogue, the epilogue of the Gospels. All the important stuff happened three days earlier. But friends, Easter is no epilogue. Every sermon in Acts mentions the resurrection. And I have preached some 12 sermons on the resurrection during my six years at UBC. And today what I want to do is actually go back and bring together in one sermon five major resurrection truths that I've emphasized over six years. Five major truths so that we really understand what Easter is all about. All right? And we're going to turn to lots of passages, so get ready. First truth, the cross and the resurrection are equally important to the gospel. Friends, Jesus did not die so that you can live. Jesus died so that you could die. And Jesus resurrected so that you can live. The cross without Easter is a vain gospel. Let's turn to Peter's Pentecost sermon in Acts 2. Here is the first sermon in church history that was preached in the aftermath of the resurrection. And let's observe how closely Peter associates Jesus' death and his resurrection. He treats them as two stages of a single event. The cross and the resurrection are indissolubly united. Verse 23, Acts 22, verse 23, Peter says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. You crucified him and God raised him up. 
The resurrection is no footnote on the cross. They are closely associated, in fact, so closely brought together, it's as if there are two stages of one event. And to understand why it's so critical that we keep the cross and the resurrection together, let's go now to Romans chapter 6. Romans 6. We have four books in our Bible called the Gospels. Gospel means good news. And the good news is all about a person named Jesus of Nazareth. At the end of all four Gospels, we read of his death on a cross and his resurrection from a tomb. Well, how does that story, that story of Jesus, apply to me? Romans answers that question. And in Romans 6, Paul references our baptism and what it symbolizes. I'm going to read several verses, but notice as we read three things. Number one, the death of Christ. Number two, the resurrection of Christ. And number three, my unity with Christ. All right, here we go. Verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Well, did you see it? Christ died so that I could die. And Christ resurrected so that I can live. Look at verse 5. We are united with Him in death and resurrection. Death, of course, was the penalty the curse brought on all humanity after the Edenic Rebellion. But friends, I have already died. When? 2,000 years ago, I perished on a cross in Jerusalem, and I have already been raised to new life. Well, when? 2,000 years ago, I left the empty tomb behind. How is that possible? I am united with Christ. Now I go to Romans 7. Here Paul discusses our relationship to God's law. And that law, as we know, just condemns us all. We cannot exercise perfect obedience to God's standards. 
And so we must suffer the penalty of death. And don't go wrong here. Many Christians go wrong at this point. Notice what Paul says. He is not going to say that we avoid the penalty because of Jesus Christ. It's not what he says. He doesn't say we avoid the penalty. Rather, this is what he says, we have already experienced the penalty through Christ. Verse 4, likewise, my brothers, you also have died. That's the penalty. You also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. So did you see it? I am not avoiding the penalty of the law. I already experienced it. That's what he said. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died. That's what the text says. And notice the place where I died. The body of Christ. In the humanity of God, I died. Nevertheless, I am very much alive, and I am capable of producing fruit for God. How is that possible if I'm dead? Because Jesus has been raised from the dead. And Look at verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. I am alive today to serve God through the Spirit because I have already died in Christ. And now go forward one more chapter to Romans 8. And let's clear up one potential issue. I am still living in a dying, decaying corruptible body. For me, I feel it most when I go out running with my 10-year-old daughter. We've really gotten into trail running, and we like to run up Paris Mountain every week. And we hit those steep switchbacks, and she speeds up. And my body is screaming, slow down. I try to conserve my wind, And she tells me stories about all the books that she's reading. Now, I can still outrun her, don't worry. But I don't know for how much longer. My body is wearing out. Your body is wearing out. We all experience bodily decay and eventually physical death. It's true. Like the resurrection affected the physical body of Jesus Christ so too the resurrection affects my physical body. Look at verse 11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, we've already died in Him, but notice this, in the future, will also give life to your mortal bodies, your bodies, through a Spirit who dwells in you. Again, notice that emphasis on the body. The body is so incredibly important. In fact, Christianity is the most earthly of the great religions. I don't know if you realize this, but Christianity puts a great deal of emphasis on the creation and the body that is redeemable. Very often when discussing their salvation, Christians tend to emphasize the salvation of their souls. 
And that thinking is the logical outcome of separating the cross of Christ from the bodily resurrection of Christ. That's what happens when Easter becomes an epilogue. When you emphasize the unity of the cross and the resurrection, then you discover that what happened to Christ's body happens to your bodies. Christ arose bodily from the grave, and so will I. So again, Christ died so that I could die. And Christ arose bodily so that I can rise bodily. That is our first resurrection truth. The cross and the resurrection are equally important to the gospel. And that resurrection truth leads to a second great truth. And let's return to Acts 2 and discover the second truth. Here it is. Number two, the resurrection eternalized Christ's humanity. The resurrection eternalized Christ's humanity. C.S. Lewis has rightly said, we also in our heart of hearts tend to slur over the risen manhood of Jesus. To conceive Him after death simply returning into deity so that the resurrection would be no more than the reversal or undoing of the incarnation. But friends, the resurrection does not undo the humanity of Christ at all. It eternalizes Christ's humanity. God took a body and He kept it forever. Peter claims the permanent death of Jesus was actually an impossibility. Let's follow the text. In verse 24, Peter exclaims, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was, notice the next two words, not possible for him to be held by it. Well, death is the most potent force in the universe, right? It's irreversible, right? But there is something different about Jesus' body. It was a normal human body. It could be wounded. It bled and expired on a cross. Nevertheless, it was impossible to keep that body subjected to death forever. It can't happen. And Peter cites Psalm 16 in support. Look at verse 25. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. For he is at my right hand that I should not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. What does this mean? My flesh will dwell in hope. The King James says his flesh will rest in hope. It refers to the fact that we do not despair that Jesus' body is now gone. The body, the flesh, awaits the hope of the resurrection. He went into the grave waiting for the resurrection And that body will not stay in the grave because of verse 27. Continue to cite Psalm 16. Peter says, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Now the word Hades can refer to the underworld, to the place of torment, or simply to the grave. And the context here concerns the grave. 
The soul of Jesus will not be abandoned to a grave. And most Christians have no trouble with that. But don't neglect the second half of the verse. The Holy One cannot see corruption. And as we know, it's the body that experiences corruption. It's the body that decomposes and rather rapidly. But Peter quotes the psalm to prove that Christ's body does not corrupt. This is something entirely new. And just to be clear, Peter clarifies that Psalm 16 really did refer to Jesus and not to David. Verse 29, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. He's not talking about himself at this point. Verse 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, notice this, nor did his flesh see corruption. That body did not even begin to corrupt. Impossible. And David, friends, was a prophet. In Psalm 16, he predicted the coming of a descendant who would be resurrected. And again, verse 31, that descendant's flesh will not see corruption. It will not decompose in a grave. Can't happen. And who is that? Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. The descendant of David whose body does not rot in the grave is none other than Jesus of Nazareth. And the apostles view themselves as witnesses to this great truth. That was a requirement of apostleship. You had to see the Lord Jesus Christ bodily resurrected. And just how important is the bodily resurrection to the disciples? Let me just show you. The second sermon in Acts is recorded in Acts chapter 3. Look at chapter 3 and verse 15. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are all witnesses. Acts 4 records Peter's third sermon. And look at verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. Acts 5 records Peter's fourth sermon. Verse 30, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. In the first four sermons, notice how Christ's death and his resurrection are inseparable. They killed the virgin-born Savior by murdering his body on a tree. But that body did not corrupt. And the apostles witnessed that same body with the scars, now resurrected. Jesus, friends, took that virgin-born, uncorrupted body with him right up out of the grave and right up to a throne in heaven. Do you really believe that? Well, look at the fifth sermon preached in Acts. This time the preacher is not Peter, but Stephen. Look at Acts 7, 55 through 56. 
But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed in the heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Well, there's Jesus right in the throne with God at his right hand. And don't forget what Jesus said when he was put on trial. From now on, you will see the Son of Man at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Stephen tells us that prediction came true. They killed him, and look, there he is at the right hand of power. And it's not just Peter and Stephen that preached the resurrection. Skip ahead now to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. And here we find a record of the first sermon preached by the great apostle Paul. Let's begin reading in verse 30. Paul says, Acts 13, 30, But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. Verse 34, And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give to you, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. David's body corrupted. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Curiously, Paul's first sermon was taken from the identical Old Testament text that inspired Peter's first sermon. The followers of Jesus just went everywhere preaching this crucified Savior has indeed resurrected to life, and He came back bodily because that body saw no corruption. And that's why I've always emphasized, friends, the virgin womb, think of this, the virgin womb was where the new creation truly began. We are not waiting for the new creation exclusively in the future. The new creation began in the virgin womb. The body that Mary bore, that same body with the scars, came back to life. And it's there in the body of Jesus Christ that God and man are permanently united in the new creation. Your eternal life, think of this, your eternal life is guaranteed in the permanent humanity of God. Your eternal life is guaranteed in the person of the bodily resurrected Jesus Christ. And that's why Romans 8 tells us that we are all waiting the redemption of our bodies. And 1 Corinthians 15 tells us Christ's bodily resurrection was merely the first fruits 
of a whole great resurrection still to come. The resurrection eternalized Christ's humanity. That's our second great truth. And the second great truth is very closely associated with the third. And to understand it, let's go all the way back to Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, we find a record of the original creation. In this record, we are told that this is a perfect work of creation. It's the perfect work of the greatest creator anywhere in the universe. And here is the greatest creator's verdict, his infallible verdict on his creation. Verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. That's God's verdict. And that verdict included God's assessment of humanity created as male and female in His own image and likeness. Verse 27, so God created man in His own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. Now put verse 27 and verse 31 together. God happens to like our humanity. He esteems our unfallen humanity as very good. Now, while we're here, let's observe three aspects of our humanity. In Genesis 2, we have a bit more detail on the creation of our humanity. Verse 7, And the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. God breathes His own breath into our lungs, and we come alive. And then God took a rib from the man and made a woman. And Adam responded in verse 23 with a poem. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Adam's poem emphasizes two additional aspects of our humanity, our flesh and our bones. Flesh, bones, breath. Three cardinal aspects, elements of our humanity. And now let's turn to Luke 24. I told you we're going to be all over the place. We're putting it all together now, all right? Luke 24. Joseph read from this passage this morning. The writer is going to give us several, or the Gospels rather, give us several resurrection accounts of Jesus of Nazareth. And I want to draw your attention to Luke's and then the John's. The disciples are perplexed by the possibility that Jesus has indeed resurrected. Can he really have returned in his humanity? Is that even possible? Or were they merely seeing a ghost, a spirit? Well, Jesus' response is emphatic. 
Verse 39, Jesus says, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Okay, and now touch me. If you want science, here's science. If you want empiricism, here's empiricism. Touch, see, for a spirit does not have, look at this, flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Well, Adam and Eve had flesh and bones. And so too does Jesus now resurrected. And now turn to John 20, where we have another record of Jesus in his resurrection. Luke told us of two of those three cardinal elements of our humanity, the flesh and the bones. And now John is going to mention a third. Jesus' lung, pierced by a Roman spear, had evidently healed. And Jesus inhales like Adam coming to life in the garden. And then Jesus breathed on his disciples in a little pre-Pentecost moment. Look at verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Do you see it? There you have it. Flesh, bones, and breath. Jesus returns with all three. And the body of Jesus is the most important clue that we have to what the future resurrection is going to look like. In Romans 8, Paul declares that the whole creation is now just waiting for the revealing or the restoration or the redemption of our own humanity. What will that look like? Like Christ. We are quite literally waiting even now for the complete redemption of our bodies. And those bodies, 1 Corinthians 15, will be refashioned after the resurrection body of Jesus Christ, the man of heaven, as Paul calls him. And when our bodies are redeemed, Paul tells us in Romans 8, this whole groaning, travailing, dying creation will obtain its freedom with the glory of God. The bodily resurrection, friends, is the hinge between two creations. In Revelation, God declares, behold, I am making all things new. The creation is restored, made new. And what will that look like? Again, the greatest clue that we have is the resurrected humanity of Christ. Flesh, bones, breath. And in that great Easter morning of the new world that we are looking forward to, God will again look at everything that He made and say it is very good. Paul tells us in Romans 5, all that was lost in Adam is regained in Christ. Of course, that applies to those who accept him by faith. And remember what Satan promised but never delivered? You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, God, in a master stroke of divine wisdom, gives us something even better. You are raised as joint heirs with Christ. You are in the family of God. The Reformation, Reformation, the resurrection, there we go, reaffirms the verdict of Eden. 
And that leads to a fourth resurrection truth. The resurrection is the first miracle of the new creation. And I have preached this a couple times at funerals that we've had here, so I will not belabor this. But as the story of Jesus unfolds through four Gospels, He performs precisely the kinds of miracles that you would expect a Creator who intends to restore His creation would perform. Jesus is no magician, vanishes in a puff of smoke or turns people to toads. Jesus' miracles do two things. First of all, His miracles accelerate the Creator's providences. His first miracle involved turning water into wine. But of course, the Creator has always been turning water into wine. But through a process so slow, we seldom notice it. He takes soil and sunlight, seed, an image-bearing sower, and produces a wonderful grape juice over the course of a full growing season. But when the Creator comes, He just does it instantaneously without having to plow the field and strip away the thorns and weeds grown from the fall. He accelerates it. The Creator forms every child's limb in the womb, and He providentially grows it through nutrition and exercise through childhood and adolescence right into maturity. He took 20 years to grow you into the adult that you are today. But when the Creator sees a man with a withered arm, He cries, stretch it out. And what normally would take 20 years, Jesus just accelerates into seconds. And secondly, Jesus' miracles roll back the curse of Genesis 3. Since the fall, viruses and deadly diseases kill, kill us. We know this. Children are born with genetic defects. So the Creator humbly incarnates Himself right into His creation. He goes about just reversing the curse. He sees a cripple, and He creates blood veins and muscle tissue and bone mass and tells the man, stand up and walk. He instantly calms the terrible storms of nature that have destroyed hundreds of ships and drowned thousands of sailors. He creates hearing in the ears of a man who has never heard the joyful birds at song or the waves crashing against the shore. Jesus does precisely the kinds of things you would expect the Creator who loves His creation to do. The Creator's verdict was the creation was very good. And Jesus' mission is to put the creation back to rights again. That's a British phrase, to return it to its original state. But there is one enormous problem. Jesus healed the blind with their eyes closed again in the grave. He stretches out the withered arm and it shrivels in the grave. He frees the tongue of the deaf and the dumb ears, but they lie mute and deaf in the grave. He creates the fruit of the vine, and the vine withers and dies. Thorns and thistles now invade the garden. He creates bread to feed thousands, but drought and locusts still destroy. He even raises the dead, and they die again. Christ's miracles go after symptoms of the curse, and the curse just comes rolling right back. Lazarus died again. What we need is one great miracle, 
one decisive supernatural act of invasion into nature that not only goes after the symptoms but destroys the cause. The resurrection, friends, was precisely that miracle. It was an invasion of death. In Matthew 16, Jesus set his face like a flint on Jerusalem. I'm going to go, and I'm going to die, and in three days I'm going to be raised again. I am setting about to destroy death itself. And when it was all said and done, it was the miracle of the resurrection, friends, that gave birth to the church. Think of it. The disciples witnessed Jesus perform scores of miracles of every kind and variety imaginable. Think of it. The disciples themselves performed miracles. Nevertheless, they forsook Jesus on a dark night in Jerusalem. Their dreams of the kingdom perished with Christ on a bloody cross. They wanted positions at his right and left hands, but only criminals hung there on his terrible ascension day. And the disciples left the unpleasant business of following a dead body to the grave to the women. All hope was lost. When it comes down to it, friends, there is only one event. One event that caused the disciples to suddenly abandon everything and to found His church and to preach Christ to the ends of the earth. One event. They saw a body. They saw flesh, bones, and breath three days from Golgotha. And then they understood this was a miracle unlike any other. The first miracle of a new creation. C.S. Lewis wrote, I believe that God really has dived down to the bottom of creation and has come up again bringing the whole redeemed nature on His shoulder. The miracles that have happened already, of course, as Scripture so often says, the first fruits, let me say that again, the miracles that have already happened are, of course, as Scripture so often says, the first fruits of that cosmic summer which is presently coming on. Christ has risen and so shall we rise. St. Peter, for a few seconds, walked on the water. And the day will come when there will be a remade universe, infinitely obedient to the will of glorified and obedient men. And when the disciples saw the scarred body of Christ, the first miracle of the new creation, they began emphatically to insist on a fifth resurrection truth. And here it is. The resurrection was a declaration of Christ's universal sovereignty. We are not waiting for Christ to reign. We sang about that this morning. Did you mean it? We are not waiting for Christ to reign. He is even now moving all human history toward the Easter morning of the new creation. Paul said to the Romans that Jesus, get this, was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. At the resurrection, Jesus claimed and Matthew recorded all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. 
That happened 2,000 years ago. And at the resurrection, the disciples suddenly understood Jesus' statement when he was put on trial. From now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. It's true. From now on, Jesus was claiming the imminent fulfillment of Daniel 7 when the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days to his throne, a throne bathed in fire, a liquid river of fire pours out of that throne. It's surrounded by innumerable angels. And we're told the Son of Man comes with the clouds to a throne. What do you think happened when Jesus ascended? He disappeared to the clouds. Well, what's on the other side? Daniel 7. He came with the clouds and received an imperishable right to rule all nations. And when Stephen was martyred, he looked right up to those clouds and he said, I see him there, the Son of Man, resurrected at the right hand of God. And Psalm 2 was fulfilled. God told the rebellious nations of his decree, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, and he will make the nations Christ's heritage and the ends of the earth Christ's possession. And friends, you better believe it. Psalm 2 was fulfilled at the resurrection. And if you don't believe that, your argument is not with me. It's with the Apostle Paul in Acts 13. Paul preached that Psalm 2 was fulfilled. Jesus is enthroned on Zion. And Paul said to the Corinthians that Jesus is now pressing all human history toward his appointed conclusion. We are not waiting for Jesus to reign. Here's how Paul puts it. He must reign. Ongoing activity. He must continue to reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That means that if not every enemy is subdued, then he is still reigning. And Paul says, verse 24, 1 Corinthians 15, then, then, once he has subdued all of his enemies, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. And John also points to the reigning lamb in Revelation chapter 5. John sees this scroll in the hand of him who sits on the throne. And that scroll is the title deed to the earth. Who owns the earth? Whoever opens that scroll has absolute mastery over the future of the planet. And John said, no one in heaven and no one on earth had a right to take that scroll and to break its seals. No one. Not Satan. Not some antichrist. No cabal of nefarious bankers. No world ruler. No conspiracy of the Illuminati. No one. But then John said, I saw a lamb as though it had been slain, standing, resurrected, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he came to the throne and he possessed that scroll and he broke its seals. For well over a century, friends, numerous prophecy experts have put all their emphasis, I believe, in all the wrong places. 
and this has been going on for centuries. They have fostered conspiracy theories, and they have examined newspaper headlines, and they have inculcated fear with wild, countless, irresponsible claims going back over generations. They have written sensationalist, best-selling books deluding generations of Christians with failed predictions about the world's impending doom. And they have ignored the whole point of the apocalypse of John, the revelation. It is the revelation of Jesus the Christ, the Lamb who possesses the scroll and who breaks the seals. So friends, Easter was a declaration of Christ's universal sovereignty. And that has to be the heartbeat of all eschatology. That Jesus Christ reigns and he's pushing all human history toward his intended conclusion. And if your eschatology does not emphasize Christ and his kingdom, I don't want to hear it. There are plenty of cults you can join if you want a Christless eschatology. Look at what they say. There's no Christ in it. Give me Christ resurrected on the throne. And for the apostles of the Lamb, friends, the declaration of Christ's universal sovereignty is equally a declaration of Christ's redemptive interest in the nations. Matthew tells us Jesus claimed all authority in heaven and earth And immediately he gave his great commission. Go make disciples of all nations. Paul likewise told the Romans the resurrection was a declaration that Jesus Christ was the Son of God in power. And immediately Paul said, we are to bring about the obedience of the faith among all nations. See the connection? And John tells us when the Lamb took the scroll, all of heaven erupted. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Christ's universal sovereignty is the foundation of our universal mission. Unlike all human rulers who come to reign and then die, Easter was a declaration that God has come to die and then reign. Shall we pray? Father, we're so thankful that Christ is alive, that He reigns forevermore. We're so thankful that that body that he took into the tomb, he brought with him again. Lord, we long for the day that we can touch those scars. We can touch the body that was conceived in the womb of the virgin. That same body was pierced by the nails on a cross. We can touch that body because we too, Lord, will be resurrected in our bodies. We long for the day that we will embrace Him in our bodies in the new creation. For anyone here today, Lord, who cannot celebrate with us these great truths, we pray, Lord, that You would do a work in their heart by Your Spirit and draw them to Christ. 
we pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.